May we pray. Our Father, we thank you. The Lord Jesus yielded his life in atonement for sin and opened the floodgates that all may go in. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn your Bible, please, to Revelation chapter 11. We continue our study in Revelation both today and tonight. We're in the 11th chapter. We have just come through the first 10 chapters. The, the focus today will be on verses 1 and 2 that Brother Eric read to us a little while ago. Revelation 11, verses 1 and 2. Listen to this. And there was given me a reed like unto a rod. And the angel stood saying, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and them that worship therein. But the court which is without the temple leave out and measure it not. For it is given unto the Gentiles and the holy city shall they tread underfoot forty and two months. You remember that John was on the Isle of Patmos for preaching the word of God. God gave him these visions of things that must come to pass. In chapter 1, the vision of the glorified Christ. The last the world had seen of Jesus, he was on a cross, marred more than any man, nothing about him that we should desire him, but now the glorified Christ. And when Jesus comes again, he will come and the power and glory of God Amen. with clouds and the holy angels. Chapters 2 and 3 deal with the churches. The church at Ephesus, at Smyrna, at Pergamos and Thyatira and Sardis and Philadelphia and Laodicea. Each of those churches either commended or reminded of some repentance that needed to go on. And those churches were real in the life of John at that time. They are also representatives of the problems in a church all through the ages. They also mark the age of the churches. We believe that perhaps today we're living in the last part of the Philadelphia period, the mission, the open door church, and the Laodicean church lukewarm. And then in chapters 4 and 5, we have the scene set in heaven. And John is called up. We believe this is the rapture. And the first thing he sees is the throne of God and the emerald rainbow surrounding that throne and the trumpets blowing. But he does not see God. Instead, he sees the seven candlesticks, which represent the churches, and beyond the candlesticks, he sees Jesus in all of his glory. Then beginning in chapter 6, we have a quick unfolding of all the events that are going to occur toward the end of the age. The white horse, the dark horse, the red horse, all the four horses of the apocalypse, and then the innumerable number of people under the altar who are praying, Lord, how long, how long? Indicating a terrible ter period of persecution and severe testing for the church. 
Then we come to chapter 7, which is a parenthetical chapter, and we have the sealing of the 144,000 Jews. These are Jewish evangelists that will go out during the period of the tribulation and tell the gospel to everybody. And remember the sealing that is given there. The seal means God's ownership on you. And we're reminded in, Ephe in Ephesians 4.30, grieve not the Holy Spirit of God whereby you're sealed under the day of redemption. Which reminds us again that if you've really been born again, if you're a child of God, the seal of God is upon you. And no one greater is greater than God, and nobody unless they're greater than God can break that seal. And so, beloved, we believe the Scripture teaches we're saved by grace forever. Amen. Now the question comes, are you really saved? Not everybody that comes down the aisle making a profession of faith is really born again. That's something that happens in your heart, not something that happens on the outside. Amen. The trip down the aisle is only a testimony that something has happened in your life. And unless that thing has happened, all the public show is in vain. And I believe there are some people who walk down an aisle, they really mean well, but they've never received Christ. That's the reason we have personal workers that try to help you look into the Scripture and find out, am I really God's child? Have I really been sealed under the day of redemption? If so, not all the armies of the world nor the demons of hell can break that seal. Amen. And so you're God's property. Then he goes on to say, live like it. We come to chapters 8 and 9, the seven trumpet judgments in chapter 8. There's such an amazing thing what's going to happen on the earth that the, that the people in heaven sort of put their hand over their mouth. They can hardly believe it. And there's silence in heaven for 30 minutes when they think of the awful, awful judgment upon an earth that has rejected its Savior. In chapter 10, we've been studying that the last couple of weeks, God is about to take possession of His own. The mystery of God is now to be finished. The Word of God is to be honored and heralded. Now we come to this chapter. There are five sections in chapter 11. We're only going to deal with one of them this morning. The five sections are, number one, the measuring of the temple. Number two, the time of the great end of the age, the time of the Gentiles. Number three, the two witnesses. And we'll deal with that tonight. I wish you would try to study who you think those two witnesses are. Number four, the second woe. Number five, the seven trumpet judgments. One of the interesting things about the arrangement of, of Revelation, the seventh seal judgment is the beginning of the seven trumpet judgments. And the seventh trumpet judgment is the beginning of the seven vile or bold judgments, each more severe than the other, leading up to a time when the king shall come in all of his glory and end that awful battle and long tenure of Satan and his hosts. So let's look at chapters, chapter, one, chapter 11, verses 1 and 2 for just a moment. Notice 
there was given me a reed like unto a rod, a measuring instrument. And the angel stood saying, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and them that worship therein. But the court that is without the temple leave out and measure it not. For it is given unto the Gentiles and the holy city shall they tread underfoot forty and two months. I want you to notice, turn your Bible to Zechariah chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. I lifted up mine eyes again and looked, and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. Then said I, Whither goest thou? He said unto me, To measure Jerusalem, to see what is the breadth thereof and what is the length thereof. And behold, the angel that talked with me went forth, and another angel went out to meet him, and said unto him, Run, speak to this young man, saying, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as towns without walls for the multitude of men and cattle therein. For I, saith the Lord, will be unto her a wall of fire around her, and will be the glory in the midst of her. And then in Ezekiel chapter 40, beginning of verse 2, In the visions of God brought he me unto the land of Israel, and set me on a very high mountain, by which was as the frame of a city on the south. And he brought me thither, and behold, there was a man whose appearance was like the appearance of brass, with a line of flax in his hand, and a measuring reed, and he stood in the gate. We don't have time to study the rest of that pasture in Ezekiel, but what he's saying is, God is in the measuring business. He measures the holy city, and he reminds the man to whom he gave this assignment not to count the outer courts, because they belong to the ethnos. And the ethnos will trample under Jerusalem until their time is fulfilled. Several times in the book of, of the Bible, we read about the times of the Gentiles. We're in that time right now. You go to Jerusalem today. The last time I was there, two years ago, the Temple Mount was, not, was, was off limits. The Muslims occupy that. The very place where the Holy of Holies was. The very place he's talking about measuring the Temple. This reminds us that there's going to be another Temple built. The Jews do not have a temple. We have synagogues now, but no temple. The Bible says there's going to be a temple. And the Lord by vision told John to measure the temple, measure the holy place, but leave the outside off because that's the dwelling right now of the Gentiles or the ethnos, and these people were not saved. He said, I want you to measure the saved people those who have given their hearts in faith to Christ. When you go out in the workaday world, do you ever wonder, why is it that everybody cusses and swears and snorts and tells dirty jokes and they just laugh at me for carrying a Bible and, and on and on? Why is that? Because they're ethnos. They're the Gentile nations. Now, you and I are Gentiles because we're not Jews. But when you come to the specifics of the Scripture, the Gentiles were those who were the nations, 
They knew nothing about the Lord God. And that's what we're surrounded with today. More and more and more. Dr. W.A. Criswell said many years ago, if the church does not change its approach to reaching people for Christ by the year 2000, the Christian group in, a, in the world will be less than 2%. Right now, I think somebody said it stands at 17%. When I started preaching here, it was 35%. You see, we've always been a minority. Now, the Lord is telling John, I want you to look into that inner circle, those who are God's people, and I want you to measure them. And very briefly, let me suggest three things that God is going to measure. Number one, he said, I'm going to take care of them, those in that inner circle. I'll be to them a wall of fire round about. Be not dismayed, whatever be tied, God will take care of you. Man. No matter what problem you're going through, no matter what kind of sorrow, no matter what kind of hurt, what kind of indignity, God will be there. Man. I think there was nobody who had to suffer more indignity than Paul the Apostle. He was the Aristotle of his day. Everywhere he went, they whipped him. They beat him. They put him in jail. They threw him out of the city. And when he got to Rome, after he had witnessed to the Caesars, they beheaded him. And you say, I don't think it's fair for us to have to suffer a little bit. Listen, if you're God's property, he's going to take care of you. Man. All the way through. He will never leave nor forsake. Man. And that's one of the great truths of this scripture. Secondly, he says... Uh, there's going to be a future temple, so all the story is not over. God is going to lead the Jews back to their homeland, and they will have a temple again. That is beginning to happen. Some tell us that there is being shipped into Israel supplies that are necessary for the rebuilding of that temple. And there's a certain school in Jerusalem that is training young rabbis in the blood sacrificial system. They haven't done that for years and years. That's all part of scripture. That's what they did in the temple. Now thirdly, God has a measuring rod by which he measures all of us, those who are saved. You see, the unsaved don't really have to be measured because out at the end of the age, they'll go into an eternal hell. Separation from God forever. But the saved, God is measuring us. Man. Day by day by day by day, he's looking into our hearts, looking into our lives. First of all, we need to remember we're saved by grace, Man. not by works. There's not one single work that is worthy of what Jesus did on the cross. Man. He was God giving all because of love. You go visit somebody in a nursing home, wonderful. You give your tithe or 50% or 100%, wonderful. 
You smile at somebody and lift them up a little bit, that's wonderful. You go by a funeral home and encourage some of the family, that's wonderful. I want to tell you, none of those things counts anything toward your salvation. Not one of them. Matter of fact, most people would do that because they are saved. But the unsaved world has learned a lot from the saved people, and sometimes they outdo us in that very thing. God measures that. He measures our concern, our love, our commitment. He looks into our hearts. We look on the outside, God looks on the inside. He measures our godliness. We're told in 1 Peter, you're a chosen generation of peculiar people, be zealous therefore of the Lord. Be holy as I am holy. Holy means sanctified, set apart to God. You're God's property. You don't belong to the beer taverns. You don't belong to the lottery tickets. You don't belong to the dance halls. You don't belong to the cussing, swearing group. You're God's property. You're somebody special. And when somebody accuses you of being Mr. Good Shoes, say thank you. Now, of course, there's some unhumble people, (laughs) conceited people who go around with their nose in the head in the air and they say, boy, that guy's not nearly as smart as I am. That ought never to be named. A man that says that ought to be ashamed of himself. Count others better than yourself. But God's people don't belong to the conceit crowd, nor do they belong to the inferiority complex crowd. You're somebody. Don't ever say, well, I can't teach the Sunday school class. I just don't know how to do it. Sure, God can teach you how to do it. Don't ever say, well, I can't sing. Sure, you can sing. Don't ever say, I can't, I can't, I can't. Let's erase that word from our vocabulary. Because you're somebody in the kingdom of God. You're important. And God is measuring you on the inside, your attitude. There are a lot of people who were born in the kickative mood. And they just knock, knock, knock people all the time. God measures that. God measures our negative spirit. God measures our positive spirit. God is looking. He is standing in the shadows watching and waiting. And then I think he measures our giving records. You remember the one thing that seemed to get Jesus more excited than anything else when he was here in the days of his flesh. He attended a a meeting, I guess it was the synagogue, and they had a practice of everybody coming around and putting their offering on the table. That pretty good practice. Jesus watched them. (laughs) Did you know Jesus watches our offering plate? He watches us in Sunday school to see what we give. You say, well, that's ludicrous. God doesn't care. Yes, he does. He said it. And when all these people came by, Jesus just looked at them. That's nice. That's nice. That's nice. And here came a poor old widow woman. And she looked around to see that nobody was looking. And she took all she had, maybe two little pennies, and put it in. And Jesus called his disciples and said, look at that lady. She's given more than anybody else. They all gave of their substance. She gave her all. You see, the Lord watches us. And he measures us that way. I think of R.G. Letourneau, and I've told you about him many times. I met him when I was in the hospital in Longview, Texas, on the way back from the convention. And 
He came and he sent his private chaplain to see me every day in the hospital when I got out. He had me come to his home and to his factory. <clears throat> and he took me through the factory and then he stood near his office out in the little place during the, in the factory. He put his foot back on the, on the wall behind him and he just laughed and laughed. He said, you know, one time I was broke at 40. I didn't have anything. But I was a Christian and I was ashamed of myself. And I said, Lord, if you'll help me, I'll give to you a tenth of everything I get. Amen. He didn't have the money to buy anything. But God began to give him visions and dreams in his mind. He wrote those out of big earth-moving equipment. He took them and sold them to those who could afford to build them. And that way he made the money to start his own factory. Then he operated for years and years. And when he was leaning against that wall with his, his foot on it, I can just see him now. He said... Uh, he said, I used to give God 10%. Now I give myself 10% and I live on the 90. I give God the 90% and I live on the 10%. Amen. You see, God watches that. And he watches as we give. Remember, the Lord sees that. And as we prepare to come to a time in the coming year where we're going to be called on to make sacrifices, giving that we might construct buildings over on the Cave Mill campus, giving that we might enlarge the program of work here. God is watching. God is watching. And he will say, well done. Man. Or you're not ready yet. Which you want him to say? I'd like to hear the well done of God, wouldn't you? Well done, thou good and faithful servant. We've measured you, and we have found you faithful. Man. We studied in our Sunday school the unjust steward. God said you're no longer going to be able to be a steward. Give an account of your stewardship. Now that stewardship begins by receiving Christ as Savior. You're not your own. You're made, bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your mind and your body, which are God's. Jesus died on the cross for my sins and your sins, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He who knew no sin became sin for me and you, that he, we might be the righteousness of God in him. Today, if you have never received him as your Savior, open your heart to him now. May we pray together. Our Father, we thank you for the truth of the Scripture. We pray that as the Lord measures us, measures the people of God, measures the temple of God, and we are his temple, may we see what God would have us do. Those who are here who are not saved, help them to come to Christ. May all of God's people determine in our hearts we're going to be faithful. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand, please. Page 320, 312, 312. Come every soul by sin oppressed, there's mercy with the Lord. He will surely give you rest by trusting in his word. As we sing this this morning, everybody get a hymn book and turn to 312. Now listen.
If you're not a Christian, if you're not saved, you're not part of God's temple, why not come today and say, I want in. He's knocking at your heart's door. He wants to come in if you'll let him. The Lord may be speaking to you about another matter. Will you do what he tells you to do? Maybe moving your membership or coming to say, I want to be, follow the Lord in believer's baptism or I want to do what God wants. While we sing, while we pray, will you come?